Well, good morning. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. I want you to know that whether you are a first-time guest or you call the Oaks Church home, I'm really grateful that you are here to worship with us this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Mark chapter 8. We're continuing our study through the book of Mark, and so you can jump in to Mark 8. And what we're going to be talking about today is what it means to truly see Jesus for God to give you sight in which you can behold who Jesus truly is. Now this is important because people see Jesus in all kinds of places. Like if you just do a quick Google search of interesting objects in which people have found Jesus, it turns up some pretty wild results. I don't know if I actually have a picture of it up here to show you, but there are people who, you know, have said, I I burnt my pancake. And just whenever I was about to throw it away, and I got to the edge of the trash can, and, and behold, I saw the face of Jesus. Now, people like pick up a rotten banana and look at it, and it's like, oh, there's, there's the face of, of Jesus, kind of over here on the right. I don't know if, if you guys saw that in any of the bananas that were out there this morning. I mean, water stains, like the, like the craziest thing. And these people have gone to great lengths to preserve these items. So, you know, there are people who have framed that empanada right there above their couch. People have encased it in kind of this clear box so they they always have it. They can preserve it. Some people, you know, they're like, I see this as an opportunity. And so they try to sell it on eBay. And here's the deal. Whether that for you is somewhere on the spectrum of comical to interesting to like, I can't even believe he just showed those pictures. Wherever you are at, I want you to know that that's not what it means to truly see Jesus. Uh, In fact, maybe some of these people trying to have some encounter have been falsely deceived and and realized that to truly see Jesus is to see Jesus in his word, to see Jesus illumined by the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling you to see the depth of your sin and the goodness of our Savior. And perhaps some of you have come in this morning You're like, you know what, I feel blind to any of the peace that we just talked about, to sing that line of that song, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus who is our life and our joy and our rest and our peace." And you'd say, you know what, I'm blind to those concepts. I have sought them and I have not seen them. Maybe today is the day that you see Jesus and find that those things only come from him. Others of you, perhaps, you'd say, you know, I know the goodness of God. I know that I have seen Jesus and this good news that I can have a relationship with God. But right now, my vision is so blurry or obstructed because of the suffering that I'm going through or the pleasures of this world that distracted me from Jesus. There's some reason that the beauty of God that I once beheld is no longer clear in my eyes. Maybe some of you, you're, you're sitting there and you're thinking, it's, it's hard to see God right now. Maybe, maybe there are areas that you have blind spots and you're not even aware of them. So you'd say, you know, I think everything's good. I think I do see Jesus. And perhaps this text for us all, my desire is that this text for us all, this was my prayer as I was studying this this week. It's, Jesus, let me help you see, let me, let me see you clearly. Help me to see you clearer than I do right now. Lord, don't let me be content with the blind spots that I have when it comes to my relationship with you and the goodness of the gospel. Let us behold Christ in the text before us. And so the theme that will run throughout these verses is this, that God is glorified by giving sight to the blind. 
What brings God glory? Giving sight to the blind. And what you will see is that this restoration of sight is, yes, a moment in which Christ opens your eyes, and yet an ongoing process in which clarity is gained through the Christian life. And that leads to our great joy in the glory of God. Now, let me remind you where we were this past week. You may remember the story. It's really kind of funny because you have Jesus with the disciples, and he takes seven loaves of bread, and he multiplies them so that they can feed thousands of people, probably like up to 15,000 people that were represented by the 4,000 guys that were present. And then the disciples, they all get in the boat with Jesus, and then they begin arguing because they don't have enough food. There are 13 guys, and there's only one loaf of bread, and so they begin to argue like, hey, whose job was it to get bread? What are we going to do? And Jesus just multiplied seven loaves to feed thousands of people, and they have no idea what to do in this moment. And Jesus looks at them and says, do you not yet perceive who I am? Do you not perceive? Do you not see who I am? Do you have eyes, and yet you cannot see? They witnessed the miracles of Christ. They heard the teaching of Christ. And yet in his very presence, in the Messiah, the Son of God, they did not understand in fullness who he was. Their vision was blurry at best when it came to who the Son of God truly was. And many people believe that chapter 8, the very passage that we will be studying today, is kind of the apex of Mark's gospel in which there is this glimpse of clarity when it comes to who Jesus is as the Son of God. The first eight chapters of the book of Mark have kind of been building on one another to help us see that Jesus is the eternal King, the Messiah who has come. And then everything that flows from this statement, verses nine, chapters 9 through 16, will be to show us that Jesus is the suffering servant both of the one who will conquer death in our place and rule forever, and the one who will suffer the death that we should observe, that we deserve, that we might live. And the question that Mark will pose here in his gospel is truly the question for every one of us as we sit here. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Who is Jesus? Who do you really say that Jesus is, and what bearing does that have on your life? So with that being said, let's look at Mark chapter 8, beginning in verses 22 through 26. We read this. And they, being the disciples and Jesus, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. The first thing that we see when it comes to God giving sight to the blind is the predicament that we are blind by birth. The predicament is that we are blind by birth. Now, I love this passage because it shows both the complexity and intentionality of Scripture. Mark is the only gospel writer who gives us this account. And the reason that he does it is beautiful. It is layered with spiritual implications for us. Because Jesus, in the previous passage, asked the question, do you have eyes? And yet you do not see. You do not see who I am. 
And then they have this encounter, literally one stanza in the passage afterwards, in which they meet a man who is blind. He literally has eyes and does not see. And what Jesus will do is he will give sight to this blind man. And this is analogous to the way that he is about to impart spiritual insight into the darkened spiritual eyes of his disciples. And if he can make this man born blind see, then he can make those of us who were once in, once in darkness see the glorious good news of the gospel made known in Christ. Now, we learn from verse 22 that they traveled to Bethsaida. Now, this is important because this is where Jesus fed the 5,000. This was a popular place for ministry in the life of Jesus. This was also the hometown of Peter and Andrew and Philip. Uh, so this was a familiar place. If you remember, they were over in the Decapolis. Then they sailed, uh, sailed over to kind of the area where it was really Jewish territory. And then they came up after their confrontation with the Pharisees, and now they're back in Bethsaida. And so they're here, and it seems like as soon as they get off the boat, this crowd is gathered. They see Jesus coming, and so this huge crowd of people come. And then a group of people bring to Jesus a blind man. Now, this was both out of their kindness, but also out of necessity. This guy could not see. He could not make his way to Jesus. He was visually impaired, and so there was no other way that he would find his way to Jesus unless someone brought him there. Now, here's what I love about verse 23. Here, this, this man comes to Jesus and we see that he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. I believe that this reveals the personal nature of Jesus. Behold Jesus here as our great shepherd. This man, does, he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know how many hundreds or perhaps thousands of people are gathered around. He doesn't know who's standing before him. And yet in Jesus' kindness and compassion, he takes him by the hand. Because if Jesus did not lead him, how would he know where to go? If Jesus did not grab him by the hand, then how would he know who to follow, how to be guided into safety? Here you see both the gentleness, the patience, and kindness of Jesus as he takes this man by the hand to communicate on a level in which he can comprehend. Isn't it wonderful? that we have a Savior who is willing to condescend upon our level that we would know his goodness. And that is exactly what Christ does here. Now, I'm not sure why Jesus takes this man out of the village. Perhaps it's because the crowd was such a distraction around Jesus. It could have been to create a more personal encounter. Here's what we do know, that there was a moment in time in which this guy was no longer holding on to the hands of those who brought him. Uh, there was a moment in which this guy had to personally trust that Jesus could give him sight. That in his blindness, he had to personally acknowledge that Christ was his only hope for sight. And by faith, he had to take the hand of Christ and follow him. Let me ask, is that a decision that you have made this morning? Are you relying upon your young life leaders or your parents perhaps your mentor, maybe you're relying on something else, is today the day that you make this personal commitment to follow Jesus, to trust that only he brings healing as this man did. Now we learn that whenever they get outside of the village, a unique thing happens. Verse 23, it says, when he had spit on his eyes. And Mark almost tells us that like casually, like we would have not been grossed out by that, right? But it's interesting because 
in the first century, spit on the eyes, using spit as a healing agent was kind of like day one med school stuff. In this time period, just as Hunter said whenever he talked about the healing of the deaf man, in this time period, spit was viewed as a healing agent. And so whenever Jesus placed the spit on this guy's eye, whenever this guy felt the saliva of Christ upon his eyes, Jesus is communicating his intent. Whenever he feels that, he knows Christ has come, not just to lead me because I don't know where to go, but to give me sight. Upon feeling the saliva on his eyelids, he knows that restoration is imminent because the Son of God has come. I, I love this, right? It's, almost, it's reminiscent of that Genesis 2 moment where the creator is forming man out of dust. And here the creator of the universe has his hands clasped over the eyelids of this man who is suffering because of sin, who is a tangible expression of sin and brokenness in the world. And Christ has said, I have come to bring healing. This is a glimpse of what Christ will do in all of creation on his return. And yet something interesting happens. Jesus lifts his hands and says, do you see anything? And what does the, the man say? Well, I, I see people, uh, but they kind of just look like trees walking around. Now, we can imply from this that this guy probably hadn't always been blind if he knew what trees looked like. But he, he says, Jesus, I, I can kind of see. It's just kind of partial vision. Now, I read this, you know, and if you've been going through the reading plan when you read through Mark, maybe you're like, oh, what happened here? Like, is, was Jesus not able to fully heal this man the first time? Is, is something going on here in which, you know, maybe Jesus like hadn't prayed enough before this miracle happened? No, it's, it's none of that. Jesus is omnipotent. He's able to do whatever he wants. And in this moment, he's not simply being the great physician, but also the great teacher. You see, he is using this man as an analogy. Because what we will see here is that in the same way that this man only gained partial vision and could partially see, that at this point in the ministry of Jesus, the disciples also, in, although in close proximity to Jesus, only had partial vision of who he truly was. It was almost as if their, their sight was getting clearer about who Jesus is, but it wasn't complete yet. In the same way that this man could partially see People like trees, but his vision was still blurry. Well, Jesus continues, and I love this, right? Jesus is the good kind of relentless. He is tactically patient. He is not content with our partial vision. Perhaps that's where you find yourself this morning. You're just kind of partially seeing Jesus or your view of who Jesus is and the goodness of the gospel is obstructed. Know that Christ will continue until you see his glory in fullness. It is a Philippians 1.6 kind of persistence in which he says, I will complete the good work that I began in you. And so here Jesus puts his hands over this man again, lifts them, and his sight is completely restored. He's able to see clearly. Here Jesus comes and he fulfills that prophecy that Connor just read from the book of Isaiah, the prophecy given 700 years before Christ would take on flesh, he comes and we see that it is true. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped in the presence of the Messiah and King. Only Christ could do this. 
And this is such good news for us because Isaiah's prophecy is not simply fulfilled physically through the coming of Christ, but that he is able to restore our blinded sight of the soul. Yes, we are born blind. Our sinful nature, rebellious toward God, is blinded to the nature of sin and our own helplessness and hopelessness apart from Christ. But God in his great mercy lifts the blinders that we could behold our Savior. Paul, whenever he's writing to the church in Corinth, says this. In their case, he's talking about unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now notice that that God of the world there is small g. He's talking about the work of Satan in the world, that he blinds people to the nature of sin. Before you came to Christ, if you are a Christian, you were blinded to the destruction of sin. You were unaware. You could not see the goodness of God and your need to have a relationship with the Creator. Perhaps you can reflect on that moment that you respected Jesus. You thought he was a great moral example, but you did not understand the depth of your sin and the great height of the salvation that he offers. And yet there was a moment in which your eyes were opened through reading Scripture, through a conversation with a friend, through the preaching of a sermon, through a talk that you heard at at a group or a Young Life club, there was some moment in which the blindness was lifted and you could see. Perhaps you're sitting here and you're still blind in your sin. I want to plead with you that you pray that this would be the day that you receive sight. Perhaps some of you are, are familiar with what is called the Snellen eye chart. I think most of us have had to take something like this whenever you're getting your driver's license or you're going through a vision exam whenever, you know, you're in elementary school or something like that. Many of you know, uh, it's kind of the picture with the big E at the top. And then there's like a row of a little bit smaller letters and then it just kind of goes down and down. And then you have to cover one eye so that you can see you cover the other eye and they ask you a series of questions. Now, eye doctors and eye specialists, they use this chart to help determine what your need is, to determine how they can best help you, to work toward a solution that you might have clear sight. And uh, yesterday I was texting Andrew, who is an ophthalmologist at the Oaks, and I asked him, I said, Andrew, do people ever try to memorize this chart so that they can just kind of avoid, you know, having to get an eye surgery or maybe they can get a job that requires perfect vision? Do people ever just kind of memorize this chart because they don't want glasses and they're trying to just skate by without, without anybody knowing? He said, oh yeah, people do it all the time. Um, I'm not going to make you raise your hand if you've ever done that or not, but he said that they even have an alternate eye chart that they can use if someone's just kind of rolling through it real quick without even giving it much thought and they think this person has probably memorized this. And you're probably sitting there thinking like, what's the big deal, right? It's just letters on the wall. Like, does it really matter if someone memorizes this and just kind of rolls through the process? But let me ask, what happens if that person that has deceived their doctor and convinced someone that that their sight is fine, what happens if they're driving down the road at 45 miles per hour and there's someone walking across the street and their vision is blurry and they can't see them? What happens in that moment? What happens if, if they have a prescription 
And they can't quite make out the, the number of, of pills that they're supposed to take. And so they just kind of guesstimate at, at the clearest picture they have, and they end up taking a lethal dose. What happens if you're deceived and you think you have sight when you don't? More than that, Andrew said, whenever someone memorizes the eye chart, they are losing their opportunity to see their best. When someone is deceived at their own visual ability, whenever someone thinks they have sight or convinces someone else that they do when they don't, they are robbing themselves from observing the beautiful world that God made as he intended. They are limiting their ability to enjoy the beauty of God's creation. They're inhibiting all that God has made to deceive themselves or to avoid something that they deem more valuable. Do you see the connection for you and I? I think it's possible perhaps to memorize the right answers to the tests of Christianity or perhaps to become so familiar with Christianity that you can just kind of roll through the answers without giving them much thought. Do you understand how detrimental that can be both to yourself and those around you? You know the collateral damage that you will leave in relationships if you don't realize the depth of sin? Do you realize the beauty that God has created you to know in relationship with him that you could be forfeiting in your own self-deception by trying to sit there and convince yourself that you have sight when indeed you are blind? We come to Christ like this man did. We say, Jesus, would you please place your hands upon the eyes of my soul and help me see you? Because sometimes my vision is so blurry. Sometimes the affections of my heart are so obstructed by your glory because there are things in this life that I think will give me more joy. Is that where you're at this morning? Would it be that this is the moment in which you come to Christ and you say, I'm blind. Well, Jesus, I'm blind, but I want to see. And my only hope for sight is in you, Lord I've tried. I've tried to be good enough and it's not working. I've tried to fix myself and I'm still broke. Jesus, I need you. And you realize today that he is a sufficient savior. Perhaps you're sitting here and you're a Christian and, and here's, my, here's my invitation to you. Don't settle for just seeing the big E. Don't settle for just being content with knowing Jesus is as the one who forgives your sin, and that's it. No, pursue Christ, that you would understand what it looks like for the goodness of God to be made known as a spouse, as a student in your marriage, that you would search out the depths of sin as David prays in Psalm 139 and say, Lord, I'm not content with where I currently am in my walk with you. Search me and know me. Know the meditations of my heart. Make them pleasing to you because I wanna live for your glory. I want to get to the end of my life and realize that I left nothing on the table, that I spent my life for your glory. What would it look like if you said, God, I don't want to settle for the big E. Lord, I want to know those small letters of your grace in my life. I want to know those small letters of what it looks like to be a husband and a father that leaves a legacy for years to come. I, know, I want to know what it looks like to be one who spends my life seeing your glory in your word, to feeling your presence through your people gathered on Sundays and in missional community groups throughout our city. I wanna leave 
the fingerprints of your glory on the city of Cincinnati. And so, God, don't make me content to just see the biggie. I want to see all of you. I want to spend the rest of my life searching the depth of your gospel until my faith becomes sight and I spend forever in your presence. That can only come through knowing Christ. Having this kind of experience with Christ in which you say, Lord, I was once blind. Help me to see. And if I see, Lord, help me to see with greater clarity. Second, we see the remedy. Spirit-empowered eyesight of the soul. Jesus, he, he tells this man to go to go back home. He says, don't even enter the village because I'm about to take my disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. And I know that if you go back to Bethsaida and everybody finds out, it's just going to prolong my time there and I'm on a mission. There's something that has to happen. And so we see here that he takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. Pick up in verse 27 with me. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Then they told him, well, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Here we see this remedy, right, that, that Jesus here in his conversation with Peter gives us a picture of what it looks like to have understanding of who Christ is, to have sight of who Christ is. Now, it isn't by mistake here that, that this takes place right in the middle of this book. We're here in chapter 8 of the 16th chapter, Gospel of Mark, and it is almost as if this statement is the heart of this book that pumps blood to the rest of the chapters. It all depends upon this moment in which Peter says, you are the Son of God, you are the Christ. And Jesus here is going to ask an important question. Who do you say that I am? And this is a question for every single one of us. You believe that Christ is a martyr, a good example, a prophet, a great teacher, or do you acknowledge, as Peter does here, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God? Now, we can't gloss over the location that Jesus takes them. He leads them about 25 miles north of Bethsaida, and he brings them to this place that was significant for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons that Caesarea Philippi is so significant is because it's named after two people, Caesar Tiberius and Philip. Whenever Philip took over, he said, I want this place to be known for political power, and so I'll name it after both Caesar and myself. Well, this represented for the people of God the Roman oppression, the political oppression that they faced. It represent, represented not only that, but it was also a place that commemorated the military victory of the Maccabeans over Antiochus Epiphanes. If you were here during our Daniel series, and that name probably rings a bell. This was a celebration uh, of a conquering, a victory that mattered, and it became a place of military significance that taught the people of God to long for a king that would ultimately come and rule forever. So not only was it a place of political significance, but also military significance, and finally, it was a place of religious significance. This was a non-Jewish region. And so Jesus takes them to this place where pagan gods were worshipped. Uh, I actually have a picture of what Caesarea Philippi looked like. And so many scholars believe that Jesus took them to this place. And what you'll notice is that there is a large rock wall, kind of a cavern, uh, that makes up this region. And there were shelves carved into it. 
And, and these shelves would have little pagan deities all over them. So uh, some of the Greek gods of that day. And so that's where Jesus takes them. That's where he asked the question, who do you say that I am? In the midst of this place of false idols that, that offer empty promises to give you comfort and wealth and success and health and happiness, Jesus brings them to this place and he says, in the midst of this cultural confusion, who do you say that I am? As we stand here in the presence of handmade idols, what do you say about the one who holds the world in his hands? Who do you say that I am? And in verse 27, he asks it in more of an indirect way. Who do other people say that I am? And we see some of the answers. The disciples are kind of quick to pipe up, aren't they? They say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist was dead at this point, but maybe some of the people would say maybe he came back from the dead. Uh, other people said, you are Elijah. Well, this was because there was a prophecy in Malachi 4 that there would be one like Elijah to come. But if you read the book of Luke, you'll actually see that that was fulfilled in John the Baptist because he had a ministry that resembled Elijah's. Some people say, well, you know, uh, they're not sure who you are, but they think that you are a prophet. You came from God. You're, you're like the mouthpiece of God, but you're not God. All of these answers show that people's vision of who Jesus was was blurry and incomplete at best. But in verse 29, Jesus gets personal. He looks at the disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, he says, you are the Christ. He says, you are the Christ. And this is so significant that perhaps we are almost uh, on the verge of missing it. The word Christ is not just Jesus' last name, as I think we can often refer to it. Christ was a title that was sacred and revered. It's a transliteration of the word Christos, which means anointed one, the Messiah who was to come. And what Peter is saying is, you are the one that we have been waiting on. You are Christ alone. You fulfill every promise of God. You are the hope of the nations and the only source of salvation for the world. You are the serpent-crushing king from the line of David, promised from ages past. You are the ancient of days, the Alpha and Omega, now here in the flesh with us. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, as we've said before, Mark likes to give us kind of the Cliff Notes version uh, of each story. It's almost like he's not catching his breath while he writes this account. And so it's helpful for us to look and see what Matthew gives us from this same story. Now, look at Matthew 16, 15 through 18. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now there are a few things that we can pick up from Matthew's account that we might miss if we just stayed in the book of Mark. Uh, one of the things, this is kind of a side note, but this was a place to worship the God of Pan, who was said to be the keeper of the underworld. And that's where Jesus says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church, which I just love that. But he, here we see that Jesus, he commends Peter, but he glorifies God because he says, flesh and blood could not have revealed this to you, Peter. You didn't figure this out by your own wisdom or logic. No, only God 
can give sight to the blind. Only he could have opened your eyes to understand this reality. This is why John 6.65, Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Eyesight of the soul is granted by God alone. That's why here Jesus glorifies God that Peter can finally see who he is. We see that even as Christians, our constant prayer is that the Lord would enlighten our eyes, that we might see who he is, that our vision would grow clearer of who he is. This is why Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Maybe, may this prayer ever be on our lips. Lord, help us to see you. Help those who don't know you to see you clearly. I also love Jesus's response to Peter. He says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, this is really worthy of our attention because in Roman Catholicism, they take this passage and they say, here, Jesus is establishing the pattern for the papacy. Here, Peter becomes the first pope in the church, and this pattern should continue because Jesus says, upon you, the the rock who is Peter, I will build my church. But if that's the interpretation we take here, we miss the reality. We look at uh, that foundation upon which Christ will build his church, and we give credit to it being this feeble man. No, the foundation upon which Christ will build his church is not the man, Peter, but his confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who has taken on flesh and entered into history to take upon the sins of the world. The foundational truth that Christ will build his church upon is that he alone is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's not building his church upon a man. And we have seen his church built for ages, for centuries. And now we stand here as living stones built up to display the glory of the Lord and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yes, the kingdom of darkness may threaten us, but the bloody cross and empty tomb of our Lord has secured the church's success and protection until our faith becomes sight and the king of heaven rolls back the scroll of heaven and returns. The gospel is unstoppable, and the past 2,000 years have proven that, that Peter's proclamation would just be the first of millions, and there are many more to come because Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, let me make this personal for you. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Here Jesus took his disciples to a place where there were tons of of competing objects of their affection, of worship. Where would Christ take you? What would be upon those shelves surrounding Jesus? If he was to take you to that place in which you would choose to turn away from the idols of this world and turn toward him, what would be upon those shelves? Would it be lust, pleasure, money, comfort, control, success, recognition, Influence, you can't worship more than one object. You will either worship Christ or your worship will be for naught. Jesus brought them to this place ultimately to show them that he is better than it 
all. He takes them to this place of political significance so that ultimately they would recognize that he is the everlasting king who will reign forever. He took them to this place of military prominence and victory to say, yes, there might have been a great battle fought here, but they will be a greater battle fought by me against sin, Satan, and death. And I will emerge from a borrowed tomb victoriously because I'll only need it for three days. He brought them to this place of religious worship to say in the midst of the idols of this world, what promise can they fulfill. Look at me, the only one worthy to be worshiped by every nation, tribe, and tongue. None can compare with Christ. May our eyes be open to behold his glory. He alone is worthy of our worship. There is none like him. But the interesting thing is that you can confess that you desire to, to see Jesus as, as Lord with your lips, but it's lived out in your life. Let me ask, and I I pray that this is both a challenge and a comfort to you. Do you live like Jesus is who you say that he is? Do you truly live like Jesus is who you say that he is? If you're here this morning and you're discouraged by the guilt of sin, perhaps even sins that you've committed this week, if you're discouraged, do you really believe that Jesus presents you before the Father blameless and above reproach? Do you believe that Jesus truly is sufficient to cover your sin and you don't present yourself before God based upon your own merit? Listen, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Believe that and live like it. Maybe you're here and you're just fearful of the future. Do you really believe that Jesus keeps the promise to work all things out for the good of those who love him? You might not know your future spouse, your career plans, what will happen if things don't go your way, but God does. Live like Christ is in control. Maybe you're here and you're just kind of brushing off blatant sin. You've kind of categorized your sin to convince yourself that that issue really isn't that big of a deal, and in fact, you could probably just squash it at any moment you'd like to. But if that's what you're living like, then do you really believe that Jesus is a just judge that you will stand before one day? He will not turn a blind eye to sin. Live as if he is who you say he is. He knows if you've fudged the numbers to get a better tax return. He knows if you're using your time at work for your own gain. He knows. If you're here this morning and your heart doesn't break for people, that don't know Jesus, do you really believe that he is the only hope for eternal life and that those who do not know him will spend forever in eternal hell? Do you live, you live like your life matches the confession of your lips? May our lives match what we say. May we be those who are bold to proclaim Christ and to make him Lord over every aspect of our life. May we not be content. May we be encouraged. May he mature us by the power of his spirit. And may those who have had sight from blindness be humbled to the point of worship. I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 1.26 as I read this this week, where Paul says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It kind of makes you wonder if you now belong to God as a son or daughter, how did I get here? I didn't deserve this. I didn't make myself understand. I'm not from noble birth. I'm not wiser than other people. Why did did God save me? Why did he illumine my eyes? And that drives us to our knees in humble adoration and says, Lord, be Lord over it all. And also for those of us who are on the verge of giving up, 
entrusts us with the promise that Christ still gives sight to the blind and he will do it again for those who yet are yet to know him. And the final thing that I want to read is here to see that our aim is clarity about the person of Christ. Now, this is simply just to set up what we'll be looking at next week because we'll actually do a deeper dive on this. But for the sake of keeping this passage together to show that Peter slightly understood, had a moment of clarity here, and yet didn't fully comprehend who Christ is, I want to read 31 through 33. Verse 31 says, And he began to teach them, Jesus taught them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here, Christ speaks with great clarity about the next couple days, or, or the coming days of his death and resurrection. Here, Peter understood that Jesus would be the conquering king of Psalm 2, but he did not want to accept him as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He did not want Christ to be rejected and killed and crucified. And so he says, no, 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 Lord, you can't do that. It's not going to be like that. Now, as a side note for our Roman Catholic friends who would say, uh, I believe that Jesus uh, made Peter the first pope, you also have to see here that the first time that the first pope speaks, he's called Satan by the Son of God, all right? So not the best argument to follow there, all right? Here, Jesus rebukes Peter, and he says, no, you're trying to provide a way of redemption that doesn't include the cross, and there will be no one brought to salvation unless I suffer in their place. Is that not what Satan offered Jesus in the wilderness? Hey, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world, and you don't even have to go to the cross. And yet, Peter says, no, you're thinking in the way of man, not in the way of God. And what would bring clarity to Peter? Ultimately, it would be personally experiencing the reality of the empty tomb after watching Christ suffer in his place, to experience the forgiveness that he would receive after denying Christ three times, to stand on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and acknowledge that he is both Lord over all creation. He is the one who gives sight to the blind, and he is the Savior of the world. And in that moment, he would realize who Jesus truly is. Let me ask, have you come to that point in which you have said, I have seen Christ, and I am willing to say that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and Lord over all? For you to truly see Jesus, it won't be finding him in, in a banana peel or a burnt pancake. It would be to realize that you are a sinner who is in need of saving. And through his death and resurrection is the only way in which you will have life. Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. But let me ask, who do you say that he is? Let's pray.